there are a lot of risks right now for the United States in the Middle East and with this conflict because we're overexposed. We have thousands of troops, for example, spread across small bases in Iraq and Syria that could become uh, prime targets for Iran if they choose to retaliate against the United States for its support of Israel or if, if we get directly involved in the conflict by, say, attacking Hezbollah. And so all of this, particularly in, in Europe and in uh, the Middle East, is actually distracting us as well uh, from what actually you could argue is a true emergency and what's going on in East Asia. So really, we're at this point now where the United States is extremely overextended, where we have a limited ability to do all the things that we say that we need to do. Actually, I wouldn't say even a limited ability. We have no ability to do everything that our elites want us to do in the foreign policy space. And we are unable to actually focus on the true challenge that we have at hand. And, and it's a really dangerous um, place for the United States to be. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the co-founder and COO of American Moment, and we appreciate you joining us once again. We have a bit of an emergency episode this week uh, due to so many foreign policy things going on from uh, this new uh, aid package to Ukraine, Israel, the border, and and Taiwan, um, to uh, Senator Tuberville's holds on uh, promotions within the military. A lot to discuss, and so we're happy to bring back our friend Dan Caldwell for a third time um, to explain to us all the crazy happenings that are going on. Before uh, I remind you about who Dan is, uh, make sure to go to our website at americamoment.org to check out everything that we're about. If you're interested in getting involved, uh, the the form to reach out to us is americamoment.org slash join. You fill that out and you'll get to meet with a member of our team and we can start scheming as to how we're going to get you here and get you into a good job. Um, so please do go check those things out uh, as well as the backlog of this podcast. Um, Dan has done so many things uh, from, from being a... Uh, United States Marine, uh, where he served, you know, at Camp David, um, did some tours in the Middle East to working for Congressman David Schweikert um, and Center for Renewing America, Stand Together. He's been he's been all over the place, um, but he is now the the vice president at uh, the Center for Renewing America. Um, and we are very glad to work with him uh, basically on a daily basis. They're right around the corner from us, so uh, we get together and scheme all the time. Um, so we're very glad to have him on, and we will go now to Dan Caldwell. Welcome back for a uh, three-peat episode with Dan Caldwell. I believe the only guest that we've had appear for a, for a third time. So welcome back, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you, Nick. It's an honor to be your only three-peat guest. <laughs> so far. So far. Only yeah. three-peat guest so far. Um, so for those who might have missed uh, some of your earlier episodes or want a refresher, can you give us a brief background of your experience, where you come from, um, how you ended up working on uh, the foreign policy issues you work on now? Sure. So um, after high school and after a brief six-week stint in a, a college at University of Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, <laughs> Uh, I joined the United States Marine Corps, enlisted as an infantryman. 
I spent my first two years in the Marine Corps in what's called the Yankee White Program, which is the presidential support program. I was stationed up at Camp David, uh, the presidential retreat. Uh, then I went to uh, the Fleet Marine Force and went to 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines. I deployed to Iraq. Uh, after I got back from Iraq, I got out of the Marine Corps. I went and finished up college. And my last semester of college, I actually started working for uh, my local member of Congress, Congressman David Schweikert out of Arizona. Currently, Arizona's 1st District, but at the time it was the 5th and then the 6th District. So that kind of dates me a little bit. <laughs> um, and I... I Started working on a number of things in his office, um, primarily veterans and then defense issues, mainly on the constituent side. But I really started learning a lot about public policy. And then from there, I went uh, and worked for Concerned Veterans for America, which is a veterans advocacy group. It's part of the Stand Together community, which is commonly known as the Koch Network. And uh, we worked a lot on on defense policy, on veterans policy, and then eventually moved a lot into foreign policy. And uh, uh, from there, I started working on these issues and working with a lot of people in the space. And eventually, I uh, moved over to Stand Together. I started working with uh, uh, Will Ruger, who I know you've also had on the show. And uh, Will is a foreign policy scholar. He was actually nominated by President Trump to be ambassador to Afghanistan. I worked with him for about three years, and then eventually he moved on to a new institution. I took his job. And I was vice president of foreign policy at Stand Together. And in that position, I was able to work with a lot of institutions and on a lot of different issues and uh, you know, on a lot of uh, um, uh, issues that are still really affecting us today, particularly the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, a lot of things going on in the Middle East. And then uh, earlier this year, I moved over to Center for Newing America, which is run by uh, uh, Russ Vote. We were on an episode together earlier this year, and I've continued to work on foreign policy. They're primarily working with members of Congress uh, on things like how um, we can uh, prioritize America's interests in our foreign policy, you know, pursue a real America first foreign policy. Um, and we've been really focused on the Ukraine aid fight on getting our troops out of Iraq and Syria, restoring congressional war powers. And um, what I've really enjoyed about being at CRA the last um, uh, six, seven months has been the fact that we've been able to work a lot with a lot of the newer members of Congress who really have come in here with a totally different mindset than what you'd see in a member of Congress, particularly from the Republican side from 20, 20 years ago. So people like Senator Vance, even like 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. you could even go, say, like four or five years ago. So yeah. people like Senator Vance, uh, Congressman Dan Bishop, Congressman Roy, Congressman Matt Gates, Senator Lee. Um, so it's kind of been exciting because when I first started working in this space, there weren't a lot of members like that. You had a, a few dependable members and you could count them on both your hands. Now, you know, in the Senate, you probably have about a dozen uh, uh, solid members on foreign policy and, you know, up to 40, 50 in, mm -hmm. in the in the House. And they're able to pull along at times the majority of the House Republican caucus on things like Ukraine aid. So it's been kind of an exciting evolution on this issue since I've really gotten involved in it um, over the last 12 years. Yeah. The reason, <clears throat> you know, we really wanted to do a, a, a third episode with you is because there's there are so many. <laughs> kind of emergency yeah. foreign policy things going on right now um and you're probably the 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 most seasoned expert that we know and that's not me calling you old um uh, but also one of our closest friends so it's always great yeah. uh to to have you on to demystify some of these things so demystify it for us 
what the hell is going on right now? <laughs> well, I don't like to call myself an expert. I've been honored to spend a lot of time around experts and absorb things from them and then repeat them. And it makes me sound really smart. That's so, all the experts. So, so yeah, if if I've done something smart, it's spend a lot of time around people that are a lot smarter than me and listen yeah. to what they have to say. So I think if you pull back to a 50,000 foot level, you use the term emergency. A lot of these issues should not be emergencies for the United States, but because of our global posture, but be, and because of the mindset of our uh, foreign policy elites, and this idea that America has to be the dominant power in the world, that we have to pursue primacy and that we have to be trying to enforce this liberal hegemony around the, the globe. Everything, therefore, is a foreign policy emergency to the United States, even if it doesn't directly affect our safety or the conditions of our economic prosperity. So take, for example, the war in, in Ukraine. Um, we have allowed that to become a foreign policy emergency for the United States. As I've said on the show before, it is primarily a European security problem, and that's how we should view it. And that's how we should be crafting policy towards it, which means that the United States you know, should have little to no role in the conflict. But we are the, the still the leading supporter of Ukraine, despite these new European commitments. And they're just that, you know, they may not fall through with them. Um, you know, if the Biden administration has its way and they, they might not get their way, we're going to send another 60 billion dollars to Ukraine. Um, in in particular, in the Middle East right now, I think that there are more interests at stake for the United States and Israel. Um, Israel uh, is a country where we've had a security relationship with for a long time. Uh, there are stronger economics links with Israel than we have, say, with Ukraine, and there are stronger cultural links. But there are a lot of risks right now for the United States in the Middle East and with this conflict because we're overexposed. We have thousands of troops, for example, spread across small bases in Iraq and Syria that could become uh, prime targets for Iran if they choose to retaliate against the United States for its support of Israel or if, if we get directly involved in the conflict by, say, attacking Hezbollah. And so all of this, particularly in, in Europe and in uh, the Middle East, is actually distracting us as well uh, from what actually you could argue is a true emergency and what's going on in East Asia. So really, we're at this point now where the United States is extremely overextended, where we have a limited ability to do all the things that we say that we need to do. Actually, I wouldn't say even a limited ability. We have no ability to do everything that our elites want us to do in the foreign policy space. And we are unable to actually focus on the true challenge that we have at hand. And, and it's a really dangerous um, place for the United States to be. And I don't think there's enough reflection going on about how we got here. And so um, we can go in and talk about each individual theater, but I think it's important to, to, to say like at a 50,000 foot level, the United States is in an extremely precarious uh, position, and it is 100% because we have had a failed foreign policy elite that has not been held accountable for its failures over the last 30 years. Yeah, I want to talk about the um, the proposed uh, aid package from the, from the Biden administration in particular, because I think it says a lot about their priorities. Oh, yeah. Um, so what they want to give money to, the fact that they want to do all of these together— um, as opposed to separating them, which is what you know Republicans are are trying to do. Can you walk us a little bit through the the construction of of that package and kind of how you're thinking about all the different pieces at play? Sure. So uh, 
the Biden administration has requested a hundred billion dollar supplemental aid package. 60% of it, so about 60 to 62 billion dollars of it is for Ukraine. And they requested an amount because essentially they want to fund it through the 2024 election. So it's it's not constantly coming up for votes during the election year mm. because they know Ukraine aid has become extremely unpopular, not just among Republican voters, but voters as a whole. And we've seen CNN polls that have showed that New York Times polls that have showed that. And they know that. So they want to get another year of aid so they don't have to worry about battling with Congress. So they 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 want 60 billion out of that 100 billion to go to Ukraine. $14 billion of, of what was requested is for Israel. And that would be on top of the $3.8 billion that we give them a year. It's a part of a memorandum of understanding that we've had with them uh, since really the uh, uh, signing the Camp David Agreement in the late 70s. And there would be a smaller amount for border security. And then the, the smallest amount would ultimately be for Taiwan. So the the overarching uh, number, the, the biggest number, the 60 billion again shows you that what the Biden administration is really focused on is Ukraine and Europe, even though arguably that is the least important policy priority from uh, a, an American interest perspective. Yeah. But here's the good news is as we sit here today and things could change is that it doesn't look like the Biden administration is going to get one big supplemental aid package. Mm -hmm. And that's for a number of, of reasons. Is, is First of all, I think it was very smart of the new House Speaker, Speaker Mike Johnson, to push through an Israel-only aid bill that was offset with spending cuts. And, and it's so funny. You, you can go on Twitter right now and, and read some of these Capitol Hill reporters that basically just make a living reprinting press releases from from. Kevin McCarthy's office, yeah. um, they are freaking out about this. Like, why would you offset an Israel aid bill? It's like, well, it's $14 billion in new spending. <laughs> we have a $2 trillion deficit likely this year, and we have a $34 trillion national debt. Yeah, you probably should offset new spending. Um, and uh, it, they're, they're just losing their minds over it. And so Speaker, Speaker Johnson has kind of jammed up the Senate because um, there are an increasing number of Republican senators that don't either don't want to pass new new Ukraine aid, uh, or they don't want a couple of other things, uh, other 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 you know priorities, whether it's Taiwan or Israel or the or uh, the border. So um, the fact that he's done that has sent a clear message. Uh, there is real organized, coordinated opposition. I think Senator Vance deserves a lot of credit. Him and his office have really been leading on this and working with Senator Lee's office, Senator Paul's office, and then members like Chip Roy over, over in the House and Dan Bishop. They've been working really well together to really kind of push the pro-Ukraine aid Republicans in the Senate into a corner and make it difficult for them to work with the Democrats to, to try and push through a big package. So I, I think because of that, it's going to be difficult to get one big $100 billion package. There's also mm -hmm. another aspect to it that I think needs to be acknowledged, is that for these more progressive senators, like Senator Bernie Sanders and, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, who've been broadly supportive of Ukraine aid, even if they've had more uh, anti-war stances in the past, I think it will be difficult for them, considering the current state of debate on the left around Israel, for them to support a package with Israel aid and potential more money for for border security, even though I think 
we all know that the money the Biden administration want isn't actually going to be for border for security. And it would be difficult for them to support the whole package because of the political pressure they're facing on on Israel and Palestine uh, in a similar way to what Republican members are facing from their base on Ukraine. So it's it's an interesting situation. And you got to give credit where credit's due is you've had some members here handle this really fantastically. Again, a lot of credit to Speaker Johnson, um, Senator Vance, again, uh, uh, Senator Lee, the Senate Steering Committee, has done a fantastic job on, on this. And uh, uh, we're in a position now where I think there could be either um, very highly conditioned Ukraine aid that goes through, and it's really the last true Ukraine aid package, or as Sorab has said I, in the last couple episodes, there may not be another Ukraine aid package. That is a that is a possibility right now. Yeah. I'm curious about the, <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, uh, Biden kind of being, and his administration being so focused on Europe, like yeah. basically obsessed with it. I, I go back and forth between two reasons for that, whether it's like just nostalgia you know, for, um, you know, our relationship with Europe of the past and for, um, you know, shared liberal democratic institutions or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever, or is it um, kind of holdover, um, you know, Russophobia, basically, like just Russia is our biggest threat, um, which I think at this point we know is obviously not true. Um, uh, what what do you think about I that? I think in both cases, you actually just hit the nail on the head. Okay. I think... You brought up a good point about this nostalgia. Um, you know, it's worth remembering that um, our Secretary of State, you know, grew up, uh, spent part of his childhood in Europe. His a lot of his family were ambassadors in Europe. Um, his acting Deputy Secretary of State, everybody's favorite State Department figure, Victoria Newland, <laughs> she's focused a lot of her energy on Europe. So, if you've spent most of your career in these places. And you have a lot of links and affinity for it from like a cultural level or, or as you said, you know, a nostalgia level. Yeah, you're going to want to prioritize that. And that's where I think the second part comes into play. Like you brought up the the Russophobia. I think we got to be honest. It's like a lot of them still believe that Russiagate was a real thing. Mm-hmm. They still believe that. Um, Putin is responsible for President Orange Man getting elected. <laughs> and even though it was completely disproven, even though it was a massive hoax undertaken by, you know, uh, the security state and sympathetic people in the media and, and members of the of the blob, um, you know, they still believe that narrative and they view Putin as a more regressive uh, leader um, on social issues, on on other things as well too, and and they view him as a larger threat to this global liberal order than say a a, a you know a, a a Xi in China, um, and so that that's another reason why I think that they put so much effort into um, focusing on Europe, maintaining links there, constantly trying to reassure our European allies, and I'd say in some cases lying to them about where the American people really are on on Ukraine and on our security relationship with, with Europe. And I also just say maybe add a, a third point is that it's actually less complex than the China issue. Um, China is is such a large challenge in terms of, of how interlinked they are with us economically, how powerful they've grown militarily, um, over the past uh, several decades, um, 
their ability to um, manage in a lot of ways benefit from America's foreign policy failures over the last 20 years. And it's a lot easier to focus on Russia. And I, I think that's one reason why you see a lot of, of liberal hawks. And even now, a lot of conservative, uh, you know, we could call neoconservatives that are going out of the way to downplay the threat of China because they want to focus more on Russia and Ukraine for the reasons we just discussed. But also, in a lot of ways, it's an easier issue. Mm -hmm. There's less issues that you have to tackle. You don't have to <clears throat> tackle things like decoupling and and intellectual property theft and espionage. So that 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 says a lot about the state of our foreign policy elite and who's managing our, our foreign policy. So one of the biggest issues I'm seeing uh, in terms of foreign policy for the conservative movement right now is that we don't really have a cohesive view on how conservatives should be thinking about this new crisis in in Israel. Um, I, th I think you have a lot of people in a, in a lot of different um you know, categories, people who want to give basically unlimited aid, people who want to give no aid, um, and basically everything in between. Um, I've been, it has now been reported that we, that we disdain the term new right. Um, but, but as you think about, um, the people kind of in our ilk, how do you think we should be thinking about, about, you know, aid to Israel and supporting them in this conflict? You know, just real quick, I, maybe I said this in another episode, but it just, it is kind of annoying how much time we have to sp spend defining certain labels or debating labels. Terms are so like, stupid. <laughs> um, I, a lot of people don't laugh at this, but this is for why for like a while I just jokingly called myself a Bathist. Like, because it, you know, I've heard you say that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, in regards to Israel, Israel has been one of those topics that we haven't been able to have an honest conversation about in, in, in about, you know, 20 years or so. And I think that that has hurt American foreign policy. I think it has also hurt Israel. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are maybe saying is like, oh, well, you're, you're are you saying you can't talk about like the Israel lobby or something like that? It actually cuts across the whole spectrum. You can't have a conversation about how atrocious Hamas is on the left because of this intersectional um, ideology, uh, a lot of it, you know, rooted in, in things like critical race theory. You mm -hmm. can't, you know, a lot of people on the left right now think that those 1400 Israelis that were brutally slaughtered, that were, you know, raped and murdered in horrific ways, even if some of the stories that, that come out, you know, are, are questionable, let's just be honest. What Hamas did was absolutely savage, mm -hmm. and they they the way that they fought was like savages. But you can't have that conversation on the left because of these racial justice ideologies, these identity politics that dominated them. Because in their minds, the Israelis are of a you know privileged racial group, mm -hmm. and you know likewise on on the right, um, you know you can't have a conversation about how American foreign policy in the Middle East has actually hurt Israel. And if you say, well, you know, it's not really in our interest um, to start a major war with Iran, and actually it could hurt Israel, like you're smeared uh, as an anti-Semite by somebody like the Free Beacon yeah. or by like a John Pohortis at Commentary or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I think there actually has been, as a result of this conflict, some some really good, honest discussions about it. I think uh, Sagar, who was on your show, 
a couple podcasts ago. I, I think he had some really good remarks. I know he's been trying to do out the show. And it has been good to have a more open, honest conversation. So with with that, I think that it's important to look at it from a purely realist you know, point of view. And mm-hmm. and others may disagree with my perspective or other realists, but I think that we need to remember that Israel has been a longtime partner of the United States in the Middle East. We, as I mentioned earlier, we have strong economic links, like our trade and economic exchanges with Israel is like, you know, pre-Ukraine war is like 20, 20 times that of what Ukraine is. Um, they are an important part of our security architecture in the Middle East. There are some, you know, been some downsides and upsides to that over the years. But I so with that in mind, I think that it is absolutely in our interest to support Israel and do what we've been doing with them since 1973 and providing them with arms and logistics and aid. And we should continue to do that. Um, But there's there's two things that that I would caveat that with is one, it is absolutely not in our interest to get involved in another major war in the Middle East. Um, That would be disastrous for us. It'd be disastrous for Israel as well, too. People in northern Israel who are in range of of Hezbollah rockets would pay a huge price. And that's why Netanyahu and other members of the Israeli government, I don't believe, want that. The second thing is, um, you know, you've heard people like Nikki Haley say that, you know, when Israel was attacked, America was attacked. That that is not true. Mm-hmm. It, it, Israel was attacked. Yeah. This was not an attack on the United States. Yes, Americans were killed. There are American hostages, but this is not the same as an attack on the United States. And I point that out because when you start adopting that mentality, um, where an attack on every one of our, our partners or allies or, or everything bad that happens around the world that's how you get into situations like we were in the early 2000s with Iraq and other places like that. And, and and I'd also add to that, like Mike Pence and some other people said, we absolutely shouldn't put boots on the ground in mm-hmm. Israel. And I'd point out a lot of Israelis don't want that. Yeah. You had some Israelis like Yoram Hazoni. I was just going to plug that. Yeah, yeah that was he, a came great out, he came out and I believe his son did too, who's yeah. serving the Israeli army, um, said that would be disastrous. Um, and just finally on this. Is it's important to remember, we are are limited in how we can support Israel right now. That is a hard reality that that a lot of people in this town have not accepted yet. Because of, of how much we've given to Ukraine and how much we wore down our military after 20 years of war, um, we we are we cannot support Israel indefinitely in a long fight in Gaza or in a long fight against Lebanon. That's not that's not saying that, you know, we should demand Israel do this or that. I'm pointing out a reality of our power position right now. Like we drew down a lot of artillery and, and probably some other munitions that we had pre-positioned in Israel and gave it to Ukraine. So as a result, we had to turn some of that around and give it back to Israel, take it back from Ukraine. And eventually, just like we have with Ukraine, where we've run out of stuff to give them, we may find ourselves in that same position with Israel, and it can't be overcome right away by dumping more money into the military industrial complex. It's going to take years to rebuild the capacity where we can adequately support a partner like Israel in a long fight and also support something like Ukraine and prepare for something, uh, a fight in China. 
Yeah. It's going to take us years to get to the point where we can adequately do that. Yeah, that's the thing that um, Elbridge Colby is always talking about yes. with those 105, 155-millimeter shells. Yes. Um, simply can't make enough of them to fight three wars so, at the same so time. So Bridge and I, <laughs> Bridge is one of those smart people who I just steal a lot of stuff from. But, <laughs> but in all honesty, Bridge and I have probably spent, of the times we've talked over the last year and a half, probably about half those conversations 155 millimeter artillery shells have come up. Yeah. Because it is actually one of the p- most important munitions for both Israel and Ukraine. You know, when the war began, I uh, I pointed this out that we are are um, you know, Israel's going to need a lot of artillery shells just like um uh um Ukraine does. And I was attacked for that. I had people, you know, like Mark Thiessen at the Washington Post attacking me. I'd you know, Max Boot retweeted it. Uh, some people at the Hudson Institute, uh, which is just, you know, uh, a neocon think tank here, were attacking me. They said, Israel doesn't need artillery. You don't use artillery in urban warfare. And then, you know, here we are. <laughs> I, I started tweeting pictures at them along with a lot, uh, some other people of like American Marines firing artillery in the Battle of Fallujah. And guess what? Two weeks later, um, the Biden administration div- diverted an artillery shipment uh, to Ukraine, to Israel. And, you know, I still haven't gotten my apology yet, but I won't be waiting too yeah, long. Yeah, I'm sure their their tweets are, you know, so voluminous. They just haven't had the time to go back and, you know, issue retractions or anything Oh, and, like and I, I, just, I just have to point out something, too. Israel was viciously attacked by a lot of these people uh, in the early part of the Ukraine war because they staked out a more neutral stance. And they wanted to be set themselves up in some ways as a peacekeeper. Or a, a, a you know a peace negotiator between Russia and Ukraine, and you had a lot of people that were putting pressure on Israel to send their Iron Dome to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Max Boot, um, Alexander Vindman, and his lovely wife, um, and uh, you know, had Israel caved to that pressure and done that, a lot more of Israelis would have would have died. And I bring this up because Israel put the interests and safety of their citizens first. And yes, they suffered horrifically on October 7th, but had they were caved to pressure from a lot of primacists, both on the left and right here in the United States, a lot more Israelis would have died. So they deserve credit for actually doing what a nation should do, and that is prioritize the safety of their own citizens. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Um, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about something that I don't think is getting enough positive attention, um, and that is the coach, Tommy Tuberville, um, his his hold on um, military appointments. Why don't you give us a, a brief overview of kind of what's going on, why it's getting so much negative attention, um, and why the Senate is not doing its job? So first of all, I just have to say I, I do have to have a little bit of a mea culpa. And maybe you're in this boat, but I could be wrong. I don't think a lot of us expected that Senator Tuberville was going to be such a rock star and have such a stiff spine. I yeah, think, I think that's true. I think, you know, there were a lot of us were, were rooting for other candidates in that primary. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of us assumed like he was just going to be one of these happy to be here type members. And again, I, I hope that doesn't come across the wrong way, but been absolutely impressed by him since he's gotten in the Senate. He's taken some bold stands on a whole host of issues, and I'd put him right now in my top five uh, uh, best senators. Um, so again, that's just an example of, of how once members get here, they can surprise you in good ways, 
and also disappoint you in bad ways. But Mm -hmm. putting that aside, I think what Senator uh, Tuberville is doing, uh, Coach Tuberville, um, (laughs) is incredibly important. And I think the fact that he is getting so viciously attacked hammers home how important it is uh, what he is doing. So let's let's just be clear about what exactly he is doing. He has put holds on uh, senior military promotions, so promotions of of military officers to general, which the Senate you know has a role in in approving, just like they do with ambassadors and and other people that occupy the foreign policy establishment. A hold is um, not blocking the promotions. No senator has the ability to indefinitely block a nomination or a promotion or a piece of legislation, despite what you might hear in the media. A hold prevents a nomination or bill or promotion from going forward under unanimous consent, meaning there's not a debate, there's not amendments and, and things like that. That's all it does is you can still move each one of these promotions under regular order, meaning you bring it to the floor, you debate it, and you vote it up and down. Instead of just voting on them as a package of 300 people and it you know only takes a couple hours, you actually do what the Senate was set up to do and, and debate and look at these people's records. So for the last nine months, he's had a hold on these promotions and um, uh, he is putting a hold on them because... The Department of Defense implemented a policy that, in my view, is blatantly illegal, immoral, and just unfair. And that policy is is that they are paying for the travel expenses and giving free leave to female service members who are in a state with restricted abortion restrictive abortion laws. They are are essentially paying their travel expenses, giving them leave that isn't charged against their leave accounts. And allowing them to travel out of state to get abortions. So that violates the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the use of federal funds to subsidize and pay for uh, abortion. So it's it's blatantly illegal. Um, but it's also incredibly unfair <coughs> because if you're a service member, for example, that has a um, family member who dies, like say your mother or father or even your son or daughter or your wife, you have to apply for and take emergency leave. And that leave is charged against your leave account, which accumulates um, uh, over time. Every year you get 30 days of, of paid leave. And if you wanted to take that emergency leave, it's going to be charged against your leave account. So let's say you take two weeks off. That's 14 days charged against your leave account. In addition, you have to pay your own travel expenses to get back home to go to a funeral. So not only are, are you down 14 days and having to pay out of the pocket at the end of your service you have 14 days of leave that maybe you wanted to sell back that you can't anymore so there are actually benefits and you could argue in some ways almost incentives to go out of state to get an abortion and and it, it completely disadvantages certain groups of service members that um, you know, who who have real needs to get back home. And so it's unfair. And again, to the incentivizing part, it's immoral. The, 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 the military should not be subsidizing abortion. And so, um, again, Senator Tuberville standing up and holding firm on this is is incredibly important. He's what he's doing. I, I, I don't use this term lightly, showing a lot of courage, but I, I just want to close on this particular talk by, by pointing this out is like 
there's a lot of policy things at play. There's accountability for a lot of these officers. I, I think a lot of these officers shouldn't be confirmed in the first place. They either were part of our disastrous foreign policy failures abroad or they're po- you know pushing a lot of these racialist woke policies within the military. I think it's important. Their, their records need to be examined on an individual basis. So I think we need to get back into moving promotions to the regular order. So that's important. But I think there's actually a more simple thing at play is that so many members of the Senate are mad about this because and they're fighting it so hard because they don't want to work. This is about not going through regular order because it's more work. And one of the senators criticizing Senator Tuberville on this, I think, tipped the hand when he said, like, well, you could set a precedent with this. And that was very revealing um, because essentially they're saying, like, we don't want to do all the work. We don't want to work more than Tuesday to Thursday. And so, again, that's what a lot of this is really about. It's not about the policy or the people. It's about the day-to-day lives of these 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 individuals, and and they just don't. A lot of them come to Washington, and they're just happy to be here. They don't actually care about pushing policy or doing the things that a lot of them campaigned on. Yeah, well, and it shows too <clears throat> how little many of these supposedly conservative members actually care about cultural issues like abortion. You know, they would rather have that time back to be able to only work Tuesday to Thursday than actually deal with this issue or go with everyone, go through everyone one by one. Like it's, yeah, it's really sickening. Um, tell us more about how the reaction I, I've been seeing over the last week, a lot of the resistance to this from, uh, Senate Republican leadership, from the more establishment, um, <clears throat> members of the, um, Republican conference, uh, t- tell us how, how that's playing out. Well, um, I think it's pretty clear that, that Senator Tuberville is getting pressured now by Republican leadership. They are not backing him up. Um, a lot of rank and file members um, are now openly attacking him. Uh, they're joining with the Democrats essentially to try and get him to you know, lift his holds. And again, they're putting more energy into stopping Senator Tuberville than stopping this illegal, immoral, and unfair policy. And to your point, and kind of the whole you know, theme of this discussion we've had, it really shows you their priorities. And it is not actually fighting either, you know, you could call it a cultural war, I could call it a, a war about um, national security and the war of the role of Congress. Like, if you're just somebody who cares about <clears throat> congressional power and like restoring Congress's role in, in governing the country, this should be one of your top issues, mm-hmm. even if you're pro-choice. Because at the end of the day, this is the DOD giving the finger to Congress and the Senate. And kind of going back to our earlier discussion about foreign policy failures, that that I that that unwillingness of Congress to insert itself into foreign policy, national security policy making has led to a lot of our disasters. And I think this is an extension of it. The, the, they are totally fine subordinating their power, giving up their power to the DOD and the national security bureaucracy on issues like promotion and on, on issues of, of other issues of war and peace. So um, you've, you've also seen too, I just have to say is, is unfortunately a lot of the pro-life community has not rallied to Senator Tuberville 
Uh, there are fortunately a lot of outside groups that that have backed him up on this. You know, Center for Newing America and our sister organization, Citizens for Newing America, have been strongly supportive of what Senator Tuberville has been doing. Um, you know, uh, 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 Jim Dement and the Conservative Partner Institute, people associated with them, others have really rallied around him. But one group that you would hope to see more involved in this, the pro-life movement, has unfortunately been in many cases MIA. One of the biggest critiques that I've seen uh, of these holds is that it makes America less safe. We have fe- we have fewer generals. Um, Good. Is that, is that yeah? So that's my question. Does it make us less safe, um, et cetera? No. I mean, what is making us less safe is our foreign policy of primacy. We're 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 overexposed and overextended around the world. But um, they play this game where accountability in Congress doing its job in terms of oversight makes us less safe. And that's that's this response you hear from not just the, the people who work in the permanent national security bureaucracy, but their cheerleaders in the press and stuff like that. I, I have to say is that it really sucks. We don't have a real national security press corps. There are some great foreign policy reporters and some great you know, investigative reporters, some of them at more left-leaning outlets like The Intercept. And you have you know, a few great reporters scattered here and there in the Washington Post and New York Times. But a lot of these reporters that you have at the <laughs> Pentagon who should be looking into this and challenging this stuff, they're basically just reporters for the Pentagon at their outlet. I'll call one out directly, Jennifer Griffin um, at, the, uh, at Fox News. She's not Fox News' reporter at the Pentagon. She's the Pentagon reporter at Fox News. <laughs> and she is openly attacking Senator Tuberville, misrepresenting what he is doing, and she is basically serving as a mouthpiece for the Pentagon. That's that's disgraceful. And um, I, I think that they have helped reinforce that narrative that you've brought up that this is making a lot safe. I would say that, that we have far too many generals. Um, it, it's worth noting that I believe we, I think this actually shrunk a bit, but for a while in the 2010s, we had as many generals and admirals as we did during World War II when our military was, you know, almost five times larger. And we have way too much overhead, too much bloat and, 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 uh, uh, too many different bureaucracies and commands needs to be shrunk. There's a lot of responsibility that can be pushed down to colonels and lieutenant colonels. And you don't need as many generals to begin with. And if we had a, a Congress that was interested in having these debates, you know, as part of this, maybe they should have a conversation like, do we need all these positions that we have open confirmations for? But we won't do that. Instead, we're having arguments that really come down to, um, you know, we, we <laughs> again, it, it comes down to the fact that that most of the Senate just doesn't want to work a full work week. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been seeing too that now um this sort of idea of of um putting up holds on some of these uh nominees is starting to gain, gain steam uh now with Senator Vance who's also a, a previous guest to the show um doing the same for the Department of Justice. Do you do you see this as a as a way of being able to like basically do you think it's effective? Like is this a way that we're actually going to be able to get some of these questions answered if we can get enough momentum. Uh, yes, I think it will require people <clears throat> holding firm like Senator Tuberville has had, not backing down. Um, again, there's a simple way around a lot of this. 
is you move these things for regular order. That's not an endorsement of just passing these nominees through regular order. I think some of them need to be defeated. But this a lot of this is not Senator Tuberville's or now Senator Vance's fault. At the end of the day, there are 300 unfilled you know, military positions or promotions that haven't gone forward because of Senator Schumer. I think that's important to remember. He could schedule the time for these votes. He could have spent a couple weeks of the August recess clearing through this backlog. But again, they don't want to set the precedent of actually working. Yeah. So of not having August recess. So I think to your point <laughs> is that could be exploited by people mm-hmm. like Senator Vance and 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 Senator Tuberville and and Senator Lee and Paul who've been willing to use these levers before to achieve policy ends. You know, one thing that Senator Tuberville has asked for is a vote, an up or down vote on this. And I think it's very revealing that both Republicans and Democrats oppose that because they don't want their names for one reason or another attached to a roll call vote for that. You know, that, that should that's tell a, you something. That tells you a lot. So I I just think that that it is totally appropriate for elected members of a legislative body to use all the levers of power that they are given in a democratic process. That's not authoritarianism. That's not obstruction. That is doing what they were elected to do. And 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 I, I hope to see more of it, in all honesty. Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Um, always great to to have you back and have you mansplain foreign policy to us. Um, it's always it's always very much needed. Um, where can people find the great work that the Center for Knowing America is doing, the work that you're doing, um, and all that? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, all our staff is very active on Twitter. You know, uh, just search uh, Center for Knowing America. You can follow myself at Dan D. Caldwell on Twitter. Uh, you can follow uh, Russ Vote on Twitter at Russ Vote. You can uh, find us uh, on website. Again, just it's easier to Google us. And you can find us across all different platforms, Truth, Getter, uh, Facebook as well, too. That's the best way to stay in touch with us. All right, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us on Moment of Truth. Once again, my name is Nick Solheim. I'm the COO of American Moment. You're probably tired of hearing my voice by now. Um, But once again, go to uh, AmericanMoment.org or AmericanMoment.org slash join to find out more information about us and to get plugged in. You can there find the backlog of this podcast, all the crazy things we're up to, the things that we believe. We will see you again next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Moment of Truth.